This summer, we are entering the sanctuary of the soul, as the Psalms have been described for us before. The Psalter in the history of Christ's church has been referred to as a sanctuary. In the Old Testament, of course, God's presence is everywhere. But in particular times, God's presence rested in very special and very providential and powerful ways. You think about, for example, Moses on the mountain where God's presence dwelt. You think about in the temple later with David where God's presence dwelt in the temple and then in the temple of Solomon, his son, in a very powerful way. The Psalms have been called the sanctuary of the soul, the place where you especially experience God's presence because they teach you that anger, depression, a sense of longing for justice are not in themselves sins. And we as Christians need to recognize that. Anger is not always a sin. Sometimes it's a righteous anger. Being depressed is not always a sin. In fact, oftentimes it's not. It's a reflection of what's going on in our particular season of life. And therefore, there are skills, there are qualities, there are characteristics that we as Christians, especially we as Christians, need to know and need to own and need to love. Martin Luther, many years ago, uh, said uh, this of the Psalms when he was talking about uh, the Psalms. He said that in the Psalms, we looked into the hearts of of all the sayings, and we seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens, into heaven itself. Indeed, where blooms and sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all of his benefits. John Calvin, who's, who uh, died, by the way, today in 1564, says this. Calvin says that what various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury, if it were difficult, uh, it were difficult to find words to describe. I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which any one could be conscious that is not here represented as with a mirror. And so, if you would with me, would you please stand if you're willing and able. Let's read Psalm chapter 9 together as we look at techniques for hard days. Psalm 9, to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. 
Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Over the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at 10 psalms together. And then in the month of August, Scott and I are going to preach on hot topics. Those topics that you want us to preach on throughout the month of August. But for the next 10 weeks, you'll hear more about that later. But for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be in the Psalter. And I cannot emphasize to you enough, this is the fourth summer we've been preaching through the Psalms. We call it the Psalter when you think about all 150 Psalms and they come together. We're preaching through this because they give us skills as Christians to know how to help us learn to pray and how to apply the gospel to our hearts with the full range of human emotion presented to us. So, let's focus our eyes on the text. And this morning, I want us to see together three things about this text. I want us to be able to see, first, the plan, then the practice, and then the prayer. Techniques for hard days. Anybody here have hard days? How do you use Scripture to help you apply the gospel to these hard days? Well, let's look. The psalm gives us a recipe for it here in chapter 9. First, the plan, verses 1 and 2. Notice what verse 1 says. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. The first thing that we do is we give thanks to the Lord. One of the most underappreciated aspects of our relationship with Christ is thankfulness and gratitude. In the midst of a, a crazy day where you're just stretched to the max or you're stressed out at work, one of the greatest things we can do is one of the most simple. It is to do exactly what the psalmist tells us to do, to sit down and say, Lord, thank you. A, a friend of mine told me about a trip to Greece that his church took earlier this year, and it's a church in Florida, and they go to Greece together every year, and there's about 20 of them, and they leave a restaurant one night, and one of the ladies in the, in the, uh, uh, in the group realized that at the restaurant, right, her passport was stolen. And if you've ever been in a foreign country without your passport, you know that it's like your lifeline. And they're supposed to leave the next day, and she realizes that the night before they're supposed to leave, and, and she goes, oh my gosh, my passport's been stolen. What do I do? And, and, and she, was, you know, she was in tears, and the whole group was going to have to leave without her, and she's going to have to go to the embassy to find a new passport. And my, my friend just sat with her and just was just dwelt with her and stayed back with her a couple of days to wait. It took them several days to get a new passport in, and they had to stay back in Athens. And, and he sat with her as they were waiting for it, and he said, um, does your son have leukemia? She says, well, 
Well, no. And he said, that, that would be a problem. Losing our passport and having to wait several days. Listen, it's an inconvenience. But, but leukemia, that's a problem. Is your marriage on the brink of divorce? Well, no, my marriage is just, that's a problem. Missing your passport is, is an inconvenience. And just as much, friends, that you compare yourself to the Joneses next door, just as much as you compare yourself to your neighbors and think, if I had a better job or better career, if you'd reverse that for a second and think, thank goodness I have a job and a career. Thank goodness I have all that I have. Our African brothers and sisters, when they confess their faith together, they look at us and they think they're incredibly materialistic in the West. Every single one of them are wealthy, and yet here we are, ungrateful for the things that we have compared ourselves with to others and that we, we don't recognize the value of first thanking God with our whole heart for everything that we've done. One of the techniques for hard days is doing just that, stopping and writing down on a piece of paper. What are the things that you are thankful for? Second, not only should we be thankful together as God's people, but the text also tells us that we are to remember and tell of his wonderful deeds. As we think about these things together, we ponder in our hearts the things that God has provided for us, and we share them with other people. Where do I get that from the text? Well, 1b says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. You could in Hebrew translate wonderful, amazing, awesome, awe-inspiring deeds. And undoubtedly, David here is thinking about all the ways that God had delivered Israel through the Red Sea. Delivered them from all of the foreign nations around them. Like he literally did amazing deeds in their sight. Hasn't he done the same for you? For those of us who are Christians, think about how he opened your heart, friends. And he made the gospel come alive. How he's helped you through difficult seasons of your career. How he's helped you with shepherding your children, dads, moms, kids. How he's helped you through school in certain ways. Talk about those as a family. When somebody this week was asking me, how should I talk about the gospel with my family? Well, this is one way to do it, to thank the Lord with your whole heart for the ways he's blessed your family, and then to talk about those things at dinner together. You know, shepherding your family, man, doesn't have to be some magic formula that you use. Sometimes it can just be telling the stories of God's grace in your family. Do you have language that you give to that? Do you practice that together? What a great skill to learn, a technique in hard days. The third thing that he says is in verse 2. It says, I will sing praise to your name most high. Here we go. The bread and butter of how to make it through hard days. You thank God with your whole heart. You remember and you tell of his wonderful deeds. And then you praise God for what he has done so far in your life. Many of you know my own story. When I was 11, went through an incredibly difficult, very difficult year in my childhood. And uh, there was a night when I was alone in my house, and I couldn't sleep. One o'clock, two o'clock. I, I, at this particular time, was, was in my house by myself, and three o'clock, and I could not go to sleep. And I was deathly, af- I had a huge phobia of being abandoned. Like, like, if you have arachnophobia, you're scared of spiders, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I was like shaking scared. 
And I remember I called one of my good friend's mothers because it was the only uh, person I knew that might pick up the phone that late at night. Her name was Lynn Bryant. And I remember I called Mrs. Bryant, and it was probably 2.30 in the morning. And I said, Mrs. Bryant, this is Blake, and I'm really scared and I can't sleep. And I remember her, she had two kids of her own. I can only imagine how exhausted she was. And I can remember Lynn telling me, Blake, one of the ways that I go to sleep is I start with the alphabet. And I go from A to Z, thanking God and praising Him for the things He's done in my life. So why don't we do that together? So she stayed on the phone with me. A, I'm thankful that I'm an Altman. I don't remember what it was exactly, but I went through the whole list, A through Z. And I do remember I made it all the way back through the second round, and I got to M when I drifted off to sleep. And I know that because Lynn later told me that that's when she stopped listening to me. Practicing thanking God, if you're having a hard time doing it, go through the alphabet together and praise Him. A, B, C, D, and alliterate your gratitude before the Lord. Build into your psyche and build into the default mode of operation, friends, a profound sense of gratitude because God has called us as Christians to be the most thankful people in the world. Are you thankful? The techniques for tough days begins, as the psalmist teaches us here, with being able to give thanks with our whole heart, to remember and tell of all of his deeds, and then to praise God for what he has done. But not only that, but the practice. Notice what he says down in verses 3 through 12. He, he interweaves these three themes of the practice. And he says, first of all, that you are to tell stories of God's rescue. Look what it says in verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. Jesus is the great rescuer. For David, God had literally delivered him from the hand of Saul and literally delivered Israel from four nations around them. Tell stories that God is your rescuer. Recount those stories together. Listen, these are the techniques for hard days. Be able to articulate the ways that he has delivered you, not just in your salvation, but the way he's delivered you through all sorts of circumstances. Are you with me? Use the psalm like it was meant to be read as a mirror of your heart. I'm just pulling this out from the psalms, and I'm trying to give us a skill together. I know, I know, listen, I know. This is what the Psalter is for, is to show us a mirror of our own heart and then to reflect to us the beauty of our Savior who is our deliverer, who is the one who not only delivers us, as it says in verse 3, but on through the text, who also fights for us with stories of justice. It says, secondly, that God is a God who is one who brings justice. For you have maintained my just cause. In Hebrew, it could be translated, who accomplished my justice and legal claim. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. We know that in Hebrews, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, having ascended. And he sits because his work is done. And he sits now as a judge, sits on the on the bench and judges the world. And Jesus here sits, which is a sign and symbol of his reign and rule throughout all creation as a sovereign God. Jesus will fight for your causes. David here has a recent victory, which probably is given to us in 5 through 7. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked 
to perish. The wicked, rasha'im, means those who are practically atheists. That is what he means by wicked. Those who have abandoned the one true God, who have either prostituted themselves for other gods, but have left faith altogether in Israel's God. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people in uprightness. And then notice what it says in verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. Fights for the injustices of his people. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. To know his name means to be his followers. To know his name means that we are to recognize him as our authority. To know his name means that we maintain our loyalty to him. That's what it means in the Psalms when it says to know your great name. That he is our authority. That we are loyal to him. That we are his. That we belong to his as his people. And then go down through verse 11, it says, I will sing praises to you. We tell stories of his faithfulness. Sing praises to the Lord who sits, again, this idea of being the ruler, of being sovereign, enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he avenges the blood and is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Jesus Christ, friends, gives us the Psalter to remind us that he is the one who ultimately will avenge our blood. You know the story in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, where the martyrs are before the throne, and notice the way that John articulates it. He says, when he opened uh, the, the fourth seal, I went up in the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had done. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, who sits on his throne, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In some amazing spiritual way, between the time of death and our resurrected bodies, though we are complete, fully glorified before him, there's a sense in which we cry out to the Lord and we apply Psalm 9 even then and say, Lord, would you avenge our blood? They're perfectly at peace without any sin, and yet here they are in his presence crying out, Lord, avenge our blood. They're emotional. They feel it. So also, should we feel like we should pray and yearn and cry out to him to avenge those who have done us wrong and to withhold our judgment and withhold our anger? I'm not talking about being completely pacifistic. I'm just saying being able to restrain your anger toward other people and to be in a posture of forgiveness toward them because the Lord himself is going to be the one who will avenge the wrongdoing. And then from verse 12 to verse 13, you notice in the text, would you lower your eyes to it again? Do you notice there's a switch, isn't there? He moves from talking in the third person, or the second person, you sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned on Zion, to the first person. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. The prayer. Show me favor, O Lord. Notice how... 
in this technique for troubled days. We go from gratitude to telling stories of his faithfulness, of his justice, of his rescue, to prayer. Lord, be gracious to me. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me out of the gates of death. We're praying here for perspective. That I may recount your praises. I'm having a hard time seeing them, Father. Would you show me your praises? That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The daughter of Zion is, a, is a, um, an idiom for Jerusalem that's used all throughout the prophets. It's only used here in the Psalms. The daughter of Zion is a, is a, a way to speak about the, the city of Jerusalem together. In the gates of the city, Lord, oh Lord, show me your praises. In the middle of Owasso, in the middle of 74055, Lord, show me your glory and grandeur. Help me to see your praises. It's a prayer for perspective. That's how we ought to pray in troubled days. Giving thanks to him. Telling of his stories of rescue together. Practicing it. And then asking the Lord to give us perspective. Not only perspective, but also, Lord, to make us perceptive. Notice he goes on and he says in this verse 15, give me, give me the ability to be perceptive of what you're doing. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. They made that pit for me, Lord. But listen, this is what happens to sin. Sin never returns on what it promises. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. If that's not the definition of the consequence of sin, I don't know what is. We are to be not only people with the right perspective, but we also ought to be perceptive of what sin does in the end. It never produces what it promises. It is what Solomon said in the Proverbs. It is like gravel in the mouth. We're to pray for the ability to be perceptive of what's going on around us. And then lastly, if you look down, if you get to verse 19, again, here he is, the one who is sitting. The psalmist says, don't sit down anymore. Stand up. Arise, O Lord. Let not man in his frailty prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Show yourself to be who you really are, Jesus. This day is awful. Help me to get through it. Give me the strength to endure it. Stand up and show yourself to be the one who has accomplished justice for your people. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. They are not. They are not God's. Help me not to treat them as such. But help me, Lord, to pray that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And that one day in the end you will rise up. And that you will conquer all of our enemies of sin and death, which you've given us now a picture. And one day you will deliver us completely. On the Trinity website, if you go to trinityowasso.com slash psalms, trinityowasso.com slash psalms. Over the course of the summer, Scott and I are going to be leading you through a devotional in the psalms to which in the past we've given physical booklets out. We're going to do it all on the website this summer. And I invite you to go there. In the psalms, in that part of the website, we'll walk you through an introduction to the psalms and we'll show you very practically how to use each of the psalms we preach on over the next 10 weeks. How to apply those to particular circumstances in your life. And Psalm 9 is the one that will be applicable for you through difficult days. Because we've got first the plan, then the practice, and the prayer.
The things that the Lord has called us to do in order to apply the Psalms to our hearts. But you know as Christians that the Psalms are not complete unless you bring them back to Jesus. There are twin brothers who play for the Seattle Seahawks. You may know them as the Griffin brothers. One is Shaquille and one is Shaquem. They were twin brothers from... Um, uh, uh, they played football from the age of four on. They, uh, they did everything together. And when they were born, uh, Shaquille was born first, completely healthy. And then Shaquem came 10 seconds later. And Shaquem had a deformed left hand. He had a withered hand. And his hand was so um, atrociously painful for him that his little digits, his fingers, had begun to grow, but they hadn't fully formed yet. And it, was, it caused such pain for him that as a four-year-old boy, he screamed in the middle of the night one night so long that his mother got out of bed to go and find him in the bedroom, and he wasn't there because he had gone to the kitchen. He had gone to the kitchen to get a kitchen knife to cut off his fingers because they were so painful for him. And his mother then at that time decided, that's it. We're taking him to the doctor. And she took him to the doctor, and they removed his left hand completely. And these twin brothers, Shaquem and Shaquille, grew up together. They did everything together. And playing football, they played through high school. They were the stars of their team. Shaquille, with his, both of his hands, was an amazing defensive back. And Shaquem played linebacker with one hand. And Shaquille, his older brother, said, I do everything for my brother. I'm not leaving my brother. I care for my brother. I want my brother with me by my side. FSU, University of Florida, Miami, tons of football scholarships came in for Shaquille. And Shaquille said, I'm not leaving my little brother. If I go to a college, they need to give a scholarship to my brother too. And so all these scholarships flooded in for Shaquille. But nobody wanted Shaquille because the guy didn't have a left hand. What could he possibly do? And so Shaquem watched his brother get all these scholarships. And finally there in the mail, the first team to offer both of them a scholarship was the University of Central Florida, UCF. And so, of course, they both go to UCF together. Shaquille excels. He just crushes it in the backfield for UCF. And Shaquem uh, sits on the bench for his first two years until... If you know anything about University of Florida and the coaching carousel, Scott Frost comes to the University of Central Florida as the head coach. And he notices this player who, who doesn't have a left hand, but he's an amazing athlete. And Scott Frost tells his staff, I don't know what you need to do to get Shaquem. I know Shaquille's good, but so is Shaquem. Get Shaquem on the field. And here this young guy was growing up his whole life in the shadow of his older brother, who his older brother said, I'm not leaving my younger brother. And Shaquem learned the art of being grateful, having an incredibly difficult childhood, being made fun of all through elementary school. That's why he went to play football, so he could learn to hit people all through junior high, all through high school, just getting toasted on the playground because he didn't have a left hand. And here his coach finally puts him in. And in 2016, of course, Shaquille goes on to play for the Seattle Seahawks. And Shaquem begins to play for his new coach, Scott Frost. And he is 11th in the country in sacks for a guy with only one hand as a linebacker for the University of Central Florida. And the next year, he plays his senior year, and, and Shaquem is the one who is the, defense, the, the conference defensive player of the year, a guy with no left hand, only one hand. 
And he leads the league in tackles and sacks. I mean, children, listen. Sometimes we have very difficult things to overcome. And here, Shaquem and Shaquille, two Christian brothers who stuck together. And I don't know what it is you're going through, but think about the story of Shaquem growing up without a hand, overcoming incredible odds. Until his senior year, he graduates, and he's waiting to be like his older brother, of course, who goes on to play for the Seattle Seahawks. And Shaquem doesn't get an invitation because every owner is looking at this guy with no left hand. The NFL doesn't want him. And so on January 30th, the last day you can get an invite to the Combine of 2017, Shaquem gets an invite to go to the Combine. And at that Combine, his family gathers to watch it from their home in Florida. And they watch Shaquem run the 40-yard dash. And here is a guy with no left hand. And if you've ever, if you've ever run without a kind of body balance, you know how hard it is. But he's had years to compensate for it. And he lines up and he runs the 40-yard dash at the NFL Combine. And he runs, this man with no left hand, the fastest 40 time of the 4-3-8 of any linebacker in the history of the Combine. And in fact, it was the exact same time that his older brother, the defensive back, ran several years earlier. And in fact, when it came time to be drafted in the NFL, guess which team picked Shaquem to join his brother? But the Seahawks. And the story of Shaquem and Shaquille is on that website that I've told you about. If you follow the link, trinityofboston.com slash psalms, you can go and you can listen to the ESPN expose of this family and the way they grew up together. But the point of the, of the story that I've just told you is this. We have an older brother named Jesus Christ who does not leave us, who sticks by our side and says, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of my father's side for all eternity. No, I'm going to stick with my brother. I'm going to go to earth in the incarnation, and I'm going to dwell with them. I'm going to love them. And where I go, they can go. I'm not going there unless they go there. And Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm waiting for you, little brothers and sisters, to come with me. And I know you've got a withered hand. I know you have hard days. I know that the Psalms just seem like words on a page to you, but read them as they're meant to be written. They are prescriptions from the great doctor, your Savior, giving them to you to shepherd you through those difficult days. Read them. The plan, the practice, the prayers of Psalm chapter 9. And notice that what David says in his own psalm, when he says, for he avenges blood is mindful of them. Of course, Jesus avenged our blood, didn't he? On the cross, he avenged our blood once for all. Later, the Lord says, oh, be gracious to me. Oh, David says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my afflictions from those who hate me. Perhaps your Savior prayed that prayer the night before he was betrayed. Or the night before he went to the cross. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe the Lord in the garden, when he was praying, said, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those like Judas who hate me. O oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death. Maybe the Lord's inviting us to read the entire psalm as though Jesus himself were praying it. Maybe Jesus himself used this technique, the plan to be grateful for what the Lord had done in and through him. Although, of course, he had no sin. To praise all of God for his wonderful deeds, for his justice, for his faithfulness through the decades of his life. 
and in the prayer in the garden the night before he died. I'm not leaving my little brother. I'm going to stick by his side. I love him. Friends, your Savior loves you. And he gives you these psalms this summer to be for you techniques to teach us practically how to grow in skills that we need as Christians. The plan, the practice, and the prayer. Your Savior cares for you more than you can imagine. For he had a plan at the cross. And his plan was to sing for joy when he could have called down myriads of angels to deliver him. His practice was to give up his life to yield himself for you and for me. And he did it gladly because he loved us with an everlasting, unforgettable, never-changing, always and forever love. And the prayer, oh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And may they be one as you and I are one. Techniques for tough days. The Psalms present to us one of the greatest helps in our own development as Christians. Let's use it together as we see our Savior high and lifted up. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us now as your people to use your psalms to shape our hearts. Father, would you help us to be people who are able to see Jesus praying these psalms together in his life. Jesus, thank you that on the cross... Certainly in the garden, but perhaps even on the cross, you prayed this very psalm. Thank you, Father, that you're, you are a stronghold for the oppressed. Thank you, Father, that you are the one who promises to deliver all those who know your name. Thank you, Father, that you are a stronghold for us in times of trouble. Oh, Father, help us to use the psalms as a tool for us to learn to pray well as God's people. To shape our family's affections. To lead our families in the gospel. Would you give us these skills, we pray, in the shadow of our older brother, even Jesus Christ, who would not abandon us and came for us in love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.